Tonight's a very exciting night. It gets into a passage of Scripture that for me was... I told you which passage really uh, changed my perspective, and that was back when we were studying the seals, that that was the fifth seal was a deal breaker for me from our traditional viewpoint. Uh, I couldn't see how it could possibly fit uh, into the scheme that we had placed around it. Um, It didn't fit anything. Um, And when we compare it to some of those passages, we come to a conclusion that uh, this was not describing anything of the future wrath of God, but rather of the present predicament of the church. That is, during the church age that we will be experiencing those things. That was the prime mover passage. But we get to chapter 12, and uh, it becomes uh, probably the second biggest passage in terms of of uh, redirecting how to interpret Revelation. You might say we're halfway through the book, and here is where we're going to finally determine how we're going to do it. No, this is, we've already studied it. This passage is the one that caught my attention and began to realize that we're not consistent in our interpretation traditionally of the book, that we aren't using the, the tools that God has given us. We're not using the formulas that he has provided. We are not using the interpretive uh, 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 principles that we normally use with the rest of Scripture. (coughs) So we're going to (coughs) come to chapter 12, and I recognize that I'm skipping a few verses, and that is chapter 10, or chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, We're really going to get to those later. They are there to introduce that we're still in the chronology. We're still kind of waiting. And uh, as a good author would do, he doesn't want to lose his readers into the chronology. That there's still something you're waiting for, the seventh trumpet. Um, He's going to have the the seventh trumpet sound um, in verse 15. And we're going to look at that really a little bit later on. Uh, because we don't, in, we're not given uh, immediate access to what happens at the end of the seven trumpet. Uh, we are given a brief look at it, and we're going to come back to it uh, when we arrive at what, what did the seventh trumpet produce. And so it has sounded, but we're not going to look at that extensively at this point. We want to press into chapter 12, um, realizing the seventh trumpet has sounded in John's vision, um, but he hasn't, uh, other than the activity of heaven, he hasn't seen what the effect of it is on earth. And so we're still uh, tied into uh, what's going on in chapter 10 and 11, a very Jewish activity uh, that we have been drawn to, the, the two witnesses. We are uh, considering the message of the temple, what's going on in the temple, the altar, and the people that worship there, which of course are going to be Jewish people. We're looking at the first three and a half years of the Days of Wrath, that that is our focus uh, throughout that period. And so it turns its attention to uh, Israel. And when we get to chapter 12, we immediately recognize that uh, we're still dealing with Israel. We're still in a very Jewish section of Revelation. And so let's look at that in uh, chapter 12, verse 1. And we're going to read through, um, I'm not sure if we're going to get all the way through the chapter. We're going to read the whole chapter, 
And I really want to take our time, though, to go through and have uh, us use some of the principles that we use everywhere else in the Bible. Um, this is not radical, weird stuff. This is simply using the tools we use everywhere else in the Scriptures. We do not have permission. We come to this book to make up new rules, nor to just uh, implant our ideas or wishful thinking into it. So we're going to read through it, and then we're going to work through it uh, as carefully as we can. Chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman and he, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth and the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. All right, well, that's the chapter before us. It's going to take us a couple of weeks to get through this, I think. Um, we want to start off uh, just plowing into it. And before we do so, though, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us, for your word before us, your spirit within us. And uh, Lord, we pray that this time here, there might be a profitable time that you might give us uh, insight into your scripture and bring it into our lives with an understanding and a confidence that you have declared your truth from eternity past in all of your workings and all of your creation and all of the working of Christ in his offer of new creation to us. And Lord, we thank you for the completeness of your truth. And Lord, we pray that we might uh, have that work of your Spirit to illuminate us to it, 
tonight. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, great sign appears, and uh, which tells us immediately that we're not really dealing with um, literal things. We're not dealing with an actual woman. We're not dealing with an actual dragon. We are not dealing with an actual sun, moon, and stars, um, but they are representatives. Um, however, there is one entity in here, and by the way, all of these do present entities to us. Not a dragon entity and not um, this woman with the sun, moon, and stars um, under her feet and a, garland, uh, and a garland on her head, but rather uh, they are emulating something. They are picturing for us something or someone. Many of these we are quick to identify. They are not difficult. And it's not in this identification process of the first three verses that we have a lot of problems with other people. Um, most commentators immediately are able to recognize it. In fact, the translators have capitalized the word child for you. Correct? So you know who they're talking about. They're talking about Jesus. The child is the Son of God. The one who is going to be raised to heaven. Uh, and so that immediately helps us set the stage. That's not the problem. Identifying those entities isn't the problem. It's later on when we want to abandon the context of Revelation 12 and then go wandering off into uh, really interpretive oblivion and uh, where we just start making things up, sort of. Um, and there's a lot of problems when we do that. So let's look at this. Uh, who is this woman? Woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and her head, a garland of the 12 stars. We're introduced to the sun, moon, and 12 stars. This isn't the first time we have seen this sign, right? We've seen this if we've read through the book of Genesis, so we already know it. We already know what it represents. Uh, the first people who had ever were approached with it knew exactly what it was stood for, right? Who were those people? Help me out. Who are those people who interpreted the sun, moon, and the stars first? It was the stars and the sun. Well, who they represent. It was Joseph's brothers and his dad. Joseph was the one who had the dream. And what did he dream? He dreamed that the sun, moon, and the eleven stars, not twelve, but eleven. Why eleven? Because it didn't count him bowed down and worshipped him. They bowed down to him. That, that, and, and he had this vision. And he uh, shared that with his family. He says, this is a dream I had. Uh, you know, the sun, moon, and the uh, 11 stars bowed down to me. And immediately his family responded, what? And this is what his father, Jacob, who himself was a dreamer of dreams, was he not? has some experience in this activity, immediately responds. He doesn't go to God and say, what does this mean? He doesn't ask for an interpretation. He immediately interprets it because it's obvious. It's that obvious of a vision. He immediately interprets it. He says, what? Shall I and your mother and your 11 brothers bow down to you? That's what Jacob responds. And he interpreted it absolutely correctly. And that's exactly what did happen. Joseph was the one used by God to deliver his entire family and by proxy 
through his uh, ten of his eleven children, uh, and then he was made essentially to uh, acquiesce to the power of Joseph by sending Benjamin against his will, uh, and essentially he had to bow to the will of Joseph. And so, yes, the sun, moon, and eleven stars bowed to him, his family. And taken together, they represent Israel. We're not talking about these individual people, uh, Jacob, Rachel, Joseph, Benjamin, Judah, Simeon. We're not talking about all those people. Um, We're talking about who they represent. And so the sun, moon, and the twelve stars, in anyone's reading of this, and this is consistently across most uh, of the interpreters, at least uh, that take the Bible to mean what it says, um, would identify this as Israel. But the image of a woman is very important because they're not representing Israel by a male figure, which we would anticipate, because this is the God of who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? Jacob is Israel. That's his name. And so you'd think, well, certainly if you want to represent Israel, it should be one of those men, or, or you know, because when you look through the history, it's, it's you know, Moses or, or Joseph, somebody, some, some male figure that you would use. But no, it's a female figure to represent the nation. Why? And this is important in our understanding of the, of the use of, figure, uh, of, of uh, figurative language but also of, of non-literal uh, images, uh, is that they have a purpose. And they aren't just random. And so, let's go back to Joseph. One of his other dreams was that uh, they were out in the field, and my sheaf was there, and your sheaves were there, and all of your sheaves bowed down to my sheaf. Why, did, why sheaves? What is a sheaf? A sheave is a, a gathering of grain, pretty much as big as you can hold, either under your arm or together like this. They would bind it together, and they would stand it in the field, to, getting it ready to go and to knock the grain off uh, at the threshing floor. And so you're out in the field, you're cutting it off with your thigh, sickled out at the bottom, and you're gathering it together, you tie it up, and you stand it in the field, and that's a sheave. And so they would stand vertically in the field, tied together, and you've kind of seen them at harvest time where you have this thing, you have the... All right, that's what it was, the backbone before we had combines to do all that work at once. And so all the sheaves would be standing out in the field till the whole field was reaped, and then you would go around and you'd gather all the sheaves, you'd put them on your little burrow, and you'd have the burrow carry them off to, or a cart, you'd have them carry it off to the threshing floor. And there's a special place where you would thresh the wheat and you would separate the grain from the, uh, from the head. So all of this, uh, Joseph used sheaves. Why would he use sheaves in his dream? Why would God give him a dream about sheaves? Were these guys farmers? Not really. What did they do for a living? They herd sheep. So why didn't all the brothers' sheep bow down and worship Joseph's sheep? Because sheep weren't the issue. The issue that would bring the brothers to their knees was grain. Do you see how there's a little more than just God randomly picking something um, for the imagery? Why, um, why use sheaves? Well, because they represent something about the future. In the future, when 
it is sheaves, it is grain that's going to be the issue that's going to bring you to Egypt to bow down before Joseph because you're going to have none and he's going to have all of it. He's going to have silos full of grain. And you're not going to have any and you're going to need his grain. And so there's a little more substance to the symbols that we see in uh, prophecy than just random. And uh, again, we've seen that. And so here's a principle. Why a woman and not a man to represent Israel? Not just because we talk about nations as in the feminine. Um, certainly that's not the case. Uh, in Daniel, we have male representations of nations um, with the he-goat and things like that and ram. Um, those are males. And so why here a female representing the nation of Israel? Well, we come down and we find out that this female gives birth to a child. And why a woman representing Israel? Pointing to the virgin birth. We have a woman alone, without male help, um, giving birth to a child. And so there's a little more substance to this than just, well, just some woman. Um, it is really a picture of the virgin birth out of the nation of Israel. Now, are we talking about Mary being this person? No, I believe this is an imagery of Israel giving birth to a child uh, corporately. And so we have all other characters involved, right? We have Simeon, we have Anna, we have Joseph, we have the shepherds, we have Bethlehem, we have all the stuff going up in Jerusalem with trying to find out what's going on down in Bethlehem when all these magi show up. Uh, we have all of Israel really involved in the bringing forth of this child who is the Son of God. And they reject him. And we're going to see that um, laid out for us. But she cried out labor and gave pain, and in pain to give birth. Now we are told nowhere, this is verse 2, we are told nowhere about how the process of Mary coming into labor um, we, we don't know that. So what is this pain and crying involved in the bringing forth of the child? Well, prophetically, we know immediately what it's talking about because of what prophesied and what happened when Christ was born. What happened when Christ was born? You guys know. What did Herod do to Bethlehem, Ephrathah? He slaughtered all the children, all the boys under two years old. He slaughtered them. And what is it? Weeping and crying, Rachel, for her children who cannot be comforted because they are no more. And so, this isn't referring to, it wasn't Mary that was killed. It wasn't Jesus that was slaughtered. But all of Israel experienced this great pain, this great, uh, in, the, in the coming of Christ, that a whole generation was uh, of the, uh, not generation, but a whole two years worth of males there in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, were in that region, were slaughtered. So Christ came forth in pain. And when we look at the concluding aspects of his earthly ministry, we know what's going to happen. That Satan's going to seek to destroy him. When he fails to destroy him through temptation or other means, he's going to attack him. And so we are introduced to another agent, another entity. And it's described here for us as a dragon. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery dragon having seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems on his heads. Um, and we're going to be looking at those a little bit more in a couple of weeks. 
Um, he is a director of some heads and crowns, diadems or crowns. Um, he has influence, it says in verse 4, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven, and he threw them to the earth. Um, these aren't literally the stars. Um, in fact, this is the passage, the only passage, where we get the idea that one-third of the angels of heaven followed Satan in his rebellion. This is the passage where we get that. that the stars are referring to the angelic host, that out of the angelic host, a third of them followed him in his rebellion and became demons. This is the text where we get that. When you see it in doctrinal statements or in uh, theology books, it comes from this text and only this text. This is it. Um, and so we've pretty much accepted that this is referring to Satan's downfall. So he's going to give us a little history. The dragon, um, in the wake of his rebellion, took a third of the angels with him, and they became what we know today as the demons. And so they were cast down to earth, and so, but we're going to see them back in heaven later on. And you're going to scratch your head, are they on earth or are they in heaven? Um, well, we know that they're both, and we're going to see that here shortly. And so, um, what's the dragon going to do? Well, the dragon knows Jesus' purpose, does he not? Does Satan know the purpose for Christ? Does he know who Christ is? Yes. Is he trying to stop it? He tried to stop it at the birth through Herod. He tried to stop it through the temptation. He's trying to stop it through the crucifixion. He's desperately trying to stop this child from accomplishing his purposes. So he is standing, it says, before the woman who is ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. That was his attempt. And it failed. We now get to figure out who the child is by verse 5. He was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Because we read to the end of the book, we know that's Jesus Christ. Her child was caught up to God and his throne. We have quickly zoomed right past his death to his resurrection that he was caught up, that is the word raptured, up to God and his throne. And so, um, the life of Christ is, and the work of Christ is there described really in just a couple of verses with, with really only a phrase or two. He was born, uh, he had opposition from Satan, and ultimately he's going to rule the world, but in between that, he is going to be caught up to God and his throne. And so, very brief presentation of Jesus Christ. But it's obvious who we're talking about, correct? Is there any question of who this child is? This child is Jesus Christ. So, are we in the future, in the midst of the seventh trumpet? No. What do we now recognize immediately? Easily. We recognize that we are not in the future anymore, right? We're in the past. We have jumped from the seventh trumpet sounding at the end of chapter 11, and now all of a sudden we are being confronted with these symbols, with these signs, with these uh, prophetic visions, and they're not related to the seventh trumpet. Now suddenly John has been jerked back to see things that started for him uh, a generation ago, 50 years ago, 70 years ago. Depending on how old he was at this point, um, and how old he was compared to Christ. <coughs> so, 
we're going back to Bethlehem. We've gone all the way back there. And here we are in the middle of something that's future to us. And we've been talking about measuring the temple. And we're talking about the seventh trumpet. And we're, and we're seeing the wrath of God. And now, all of a sudden, wait a minute, now we're back in the past. Exactly. And this is very, very common in Old Testament prophets to jump around time-wise. Because chronology isn't their primary purpose to give you a, a complete timeline. And so, uh, if Ken wasn't in Oklahoma <laughs> and uh, had been here, we would have a new timeline uh, drop down below there uh, and we would be back to Christ at Bethlehem and then at the cross and the resurrection because it's all listed here. So we are not in the future anymore. We are not in the seven years of God's wrath. And we are going to kind of put the seventh trumpet, we heard it sound, and now we're just kind of put that on hold because I've introduced to you something that I need to explain. What did he introduce to us in chapter 11 with no explanation? He introduced to us uh, a beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. We have been introduced to a beast that's going to make war, that's going to be the center point from this point on. And it's almost as if God says, now, we need to back up because you need to have the whole history of this. And you need to see how the working of God has been historically. And so now we're going back in time. And we're not going, this isn't as far back as we're going to go. We're going to go even farther back than Christ's birth and death. But that's the intermediate period because now we immediately recognize, we recognize this event. We recognize this is Israel. We recognize this is not tomorrow. Uh, it's not in the midst of the seven years. This is historical record. Now we've gone back to the birth, life, death, and resurrection ascension of Jesus Christ, right? We all are there. So we backed up. Why? So that we can have an understanding of what Satan is doing. We have so far been looking at everything from heaven's point down what heaven has been doing. Now we are shifting gears and we're going to see what has Satan been doing all this time? What has been going on in the enemy's camp? What is his activity and, and his goals and aspirations? What is it he has been trying to do to thwart God? And so we've been introduced to him with no information well, little, a little information. He sends out the bottomless pit to make war um, against the two witnesses in verse 7 of chapter 11. We don't know anything else about this beast. Well, now we're going to find out all about him. And we're going to start by the first thing he wants to use to help you learn who this beast is, is I want you to realize he has been against Christ forever. Not forever. For all of his days on earth. We are talking about the one who is against Christ. Okay? From sin's entrance into the world at the Garden of Eden all the way till he will be destroyed by God at the end of the thousand years and placed into the lake of fire. And so, the dragon is the representation of Satan. We have the, the, his angels, his demons... And we have his 
interaction with God's plan working out, trying to stop it, trying to interrupt it, trying to destroy it, all the way along. And we're going to find out in the next uh, probably about three or four weeks how he has striven to do that into our day um, and into the days past. But where we start in our backwards journey is to the Christ. Because we immediately need to recognize that this is the enemy of God. His manifestations in the time before Christ, we could maybe argue um, that um, they weren't evil or that they weren't uh, works of Satan. But when you come to the narrative of Jesus, it is really obvious, right? He is opposed to Christ. He's trying to kill him from birth all the way through his entire life. Even right to the resurrection ascension, he's trying to destroy this child. He fails. All right? He fails to do that. And so we're left with what's left behind. And so we're moving now into the church age. We're not in the future. It's very tempting to go there, but the, we don't want to go into the future yet because we are given the historical foundation for Satan and the empires and nations of the earth and how they relate to each other and how Satan uses them to try to accomplish his purposes of trying to thwart God even though God is the one who raised up nations. So this takes a little explaining to do before we get into their involvement in the end times. So, the child was caught up to God. We know that child to be Jesus Christ. And now we come into verse 6, and this is where we start having problems. So, you get to verse 6, and what's the first word of verse 6? Then. What does then mean? The next thing that happens. Okay. Um, prophetically, then should mean the next thing that happens. Somehow, then becomes... 2,000 years later, after the rapture of the church, into the midpoint of the seven years of God's wrath when the seventh trumpet is sounded. And we have just taken a time warp leap back to the future. So we went back to the back past only for five verses, and now we have shot forward back into the future. And so the, the traditional view is, is that all John has done is take us back for five verses into the past. And this is created, without them even recognizing it or acknowledging it, this has created huge problems theologically because of the content of the next few verses. And this is where our brethren stand today. And this is where I don't stand along with them. This is where we diverge, and where, um, and I need to let you know that that the, I'm not going to give you the traditional pre-trib, pre-millennial view of this passage because I don't think it's historically accurate. I don't think it's it's honest to the text, and I don't think it's theologically correct at all. I think it's troublesome that the way they handle this. 
So the woman we said was Israel. And yes, this has been a very Jewish text and, it, and it's very inviting for us to jump forward and to want to leap back into chapter 11. But the purpose of this is not really to follow Israel. The purpose of this is really to outline what's going on with this dragon. What is Satan up to? And this is a very precious passage for us. A very precious passage that has been tossed into the future in a time when we're not even on earth and so none of it matters to us. And I would tell you that the next few verses matter greatly to us. So let's read them again. The woman who is Israel fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And immediately we remember 1,260 days. Wasn't that in the last chapter? Uh Chapter 11, verse 3. And it is very inviting for us to make that connection. And say, well, we must be in the same time frame. That she's fled in the wilderness. And certainly there's some typology there. But let's keep reading. I'm going to try to defend that in ten minutes somehow. So, let's see what was going on. It says, War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. So now we know who the dragon is, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accused of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. How did they do this? Verse 11, they did it by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, you dwell of them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devils come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. So verse 13 is where we want to jump to. Verse 7 through 12 are huge. Huge, huge, huge. We're going to get to them in a second. When the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the child. But the woman was given two wings of a great angel that she should fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So verse, uh, excuse me, verse 14 and verse 6 are referring to the same time. So 14.6, we recognize that for three and a half years, Israel is under intense opposition by Satan's forces to the point that Israel has to flee out into the wilderness and hide for three and a half years. And yes, that can be very easily connected to uh, the future events of the seven years. Obviously, there's three and a half years still left. Israel has to run and hide to do that. Um, But we're really focused on, on understanding the opposition, uh, not just for Israel, because he stops chasing Israel. Do you notice that? Look at what he says. Here. Um, at the verse 17, I'm going to skip a little section there because we're going to get to it next week. It says, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. So, there's someone else besides Israel that Satan is attacking during this three and a half years. 
the rest of her offspring. Who are these people? The people who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Outside of the 144,000, who are these people if this is in the future? Who for three and a half years have the testimony of Jesus Christ and have been keeping the commandments of God? Who are these people? We've already demonstrated that the rapture has already happened, that we find no great coming to Christ um, outside of the nation of Israel, and we have 144,000 who are sealed. And so who are the children of the woman if we're still in the future? How would contend we are not in the future? Because the purpose of the passage is not to pick up what happens to Israel during the last half of the seven years of God's wrath. This is not the time of God's wrath. How do I know that? Because it says this is the time of whose wrath? The dragon's wrath. We are not in the seven years of God's wrath. We are in the three and a half years of the dragon's wrath. He's mad. Why is he mad? Because he just got beat. When did Satan get beat? When Jesus raised, rose from the dead and went to heaven. The blood of the Lamb is the equipment, it is the weapon that the angelic host said, no longer are you allowed access to heaven. Now, this is disturbing to us a little bit because we're pretty sure, why is Satan in heaven? Um, do you remember the book of Job? Who is in heaven in the book of Job at the beginning? Satan. Why is he there? Why is he there? Well, he's going to accuse Job of a lot of things. But what's he there for? It says that they arrive in heaven because they have to give answer to God for what they've been doing. Satan is still has access to heaven somehow. And he uses that access to accuse God's people. That's what he did. All through the Old Testament, he was the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of the people of God. Um, that's who he was. And so he still had access to heaven. The demons still had some access there. It wasn't in the heaven that we think of as the abode of the glory of God. It was in a, another level of it where they could still come and had to give answer to God of where they had been and what they had been up to. They, and there in that setting, they accused people like righteous Job, and I'm sure Noah got accused, and David got accused, and Solomon got accused, and, and Daniel got accused. I'm sure all the prophets and all the godly men of, of the people of God have been accused by Satan in God's presence. Now, if that's still going on today, I have big problems. Don't you? Because if all of this is referring to a future time, future events that happen in the seven years of God's wrath, what does that mean Satan can do right now against us? He can accuse you. How can that be? How can he accuse us? We're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Who can accuse us. Because we don't stand in our own righteousness. We stand in the righteousness of Christ. So, 
When did verses 7 through 12 happen is the big, giant question. And it is not future. It must be past. This is the effect. Now, now remember, when we were in chapter 4 and 5, especially chapter 5, we saw the effect of Christ's ascension on heaven. Remember that? And they changed the singing, and all the worship got moved around, and, and wow, things were happening, right? And then the seals started busting open, and uh, we saw the effect of the resurrection on heaven. Now, there was one part left out, and that is, what about the effect of the resurrection on Satan? What was the effect? Well, this is where we find out that there was a war in heaven, that Michael and his angels fought the dragons, says, it's time for you to get out of here. You're not going to be allowed here anymore. You are not going to have access to this place any longer. And it's described as a war. And Satan says, no, I'm going to hear. I, I, no, you're not going to give that access. And God sends his messengers to do this job. And this job is to kick Satan out of heaven permanently. Never again will he have access there at all. They don't have the authority in themselves to counter him, which should really warn us about trying to take on demons. Really warn us. You had better have your I's dotted and your T's crossed in your life if you're going to go out there and take on demons. Okay, Because Michael, the archangel, and the angels had a fight on their hands. But they had the ultimate weapon. What was the ultimate weapon? They came against him, and it says they came against him with what? Verse 11, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives to the death. And that they there is referring to the people of God. And so they said, you can't accuse these anymore. There's the blood of the Lamb has covered them. And now they have surrendered their life to Christ, to God. And now it's ours. They have put to death sin that we talked about this morning. And so it is by that means that the angels kick Satan out of heaven. In verse 8, they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Well, that if that's just future, then... We're in trouble. That has to be passed. It must be passed theologically. It must be in my past. Or else I am still being able to be accused by Satan in heaven and that cannot stand. Because I have died to myself. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the power of God. I'm covered by the blood. I cannot be accused in heaven, for I stand redeemed. And so Satan was cast out. When did this happen? When did verse 9 happen? When did the great dragon cast out that serpent of called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world? He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. When did this happen? It had to have happened when Christ arrived in heaven. Had to. There is no way that you can have the power of the blood covering sin and Satan there accusing him. They are unable to be in the presence of one another simultaneously. You cannot have it. 
So when did this battle in heaven occur? When was Satan cast out? Um, it was while Jesus was taking his throne and the song was changing in heaven and Satan wasn't going to be allowed to hear that song. Satan was going to be thrown out and he was thrown to the earth. And it's fascinating. Every New Testament reference to Satan has him earthbound. Think about it. How is he described in the New Testament era after Christ? How is he described? As a roaring lion prowling around seeking whom he may devour. Does that sound like Satan in his wrath, right? There, he's always earthbound. He can't accuse us any longer. We are unaccusable in heaven because we have died to ourselves and we have placed ourselves in the life of Christ and the righteousness of Christ. And we have this wonderful condition and this is theologically critical. The accuser of our brother who accused them, past tense, before God day and night has been cast down. Hallelujah. Can you say that? That's, that's precious. And it, and it better not be future. It better be now. Or we're in trouble. And it better have already happened. This war better have happened thousands of years ago. Well, 1900 and some years ago. It needed to happen then. Because then salvation and strength and the kingdom of God and the power of his Christ have come. That's when salvation comes, is when Satan's accusations are gone. How can he accuse me? I don't wear my own righteousness. I wear Christ. How can he have anything to say against Christ's righteousness? I don't re living my life. I'm living the life of Christ. I put to death myself, crucified. I need to live like it more. But that's who I am. I'm a new person. All things have passed away. Everything has become new. So what does the dragon do? Oh, my time is up. You don't get to find out what the dragon does. Since we're not in the future, we must still be in the past. In the activity of the war in heaven in verses 7 uh, and following uh, had to be when Christ arrived in heaven, which means that the activity of the woman in the wilderness is still in the past. We're, we're back there. We're in another, a different three and a half year time frame. And that's kind of tough for us to understand why the, the close connection of time down to the day. Um, but we're going to talk a lot more about that next week. So we are theologically must understand that we are talking about historical events, not future events. If we try to push this account, this whole chapter into the future somehow, once we get past verse 5, we run into huge problems. I don't care what your eschatology is. I have a problem with you believing that Satan has access to heaven and can accuse me, a child of God, of anything. If you believe that, and most of my brethren do believe that, I don't understand how they can believe that, I have very little I can converse with you on spiritually. If you still think that Satan can accuse me before God, because I don't stand on my own righteousness. So how can there be an accuser? And so this war is over. This happened when Christ 
arrived in heaven um, while the 24 elders and while the four living creatures were singing and, and changing the song, Michael, the archangel, and his buddies were out there kicking Satan out. It's the same time frame. So chapter 5 and this account here in chapter 12 are referring to the same exact time. And it should be no surprise then that what's to come next week is historical and not future. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you that we can have this access to you in prayer because we've been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and that Satan himself cannot accuse us before you and and certainly um, our consciences uh, know that we're sinners and but also know that we're not trusting in being anything other than your children to gain your favor. Lord, we thank you for the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That I can stand, and that every believer can stand unaccused. That we have a, a, a standing, a, a justified, sanctified, glorified standing in your presence in heaven. And that by the power of that blood, Satan himself has been banished forever. And Lord, we thank you and can't cease to give praise to your name. And it's in that name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.